this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. Hey guys, this is John Warlow. This episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by the Value Builder Score. If you haven't got your score yet, I'd encourage you to take 13 minutes and complete the questionnaire you'll find at valuebuilder.com. It'll give you your score on the eight key drivers of company value. You're going to learn some different things about what drives the value of your business. You'll be able to see how you performed on these eight unique factors. Go to valuebuilder.com. You know, one of the big decisions that I think you're going to need to make when it comes to the sale of your company is how many businesses you're comfortable negotiating with. You know, we had Catherine Haig on the show a couple of weeks ago, and she talked about falling kind of neatly into the arms of one strategic buyer in her industry. And, you know, I asked her, you know, do you regret not shopping the deal? And she said, yeah, maybe I left a little bit of money on the table, but, you know, we wanted to make it a, an easy transition and we thought these guys were a good strategic buyer. That's kind of one camp. The other camp, and our next guest, Mark Carlson, I think falls into this camp, says, no, no, I'm going to take a much more mercenary approach to the sale of my company. I want to get lots of different bidders involved and maximize my price by, you know, ginning up the competitive tension in the deal. And that's exactly what Mark Carlson did when he went to sell his business, Minnesota Mailing Solutions. He got the two biggest players in the industry to bid against each other, essentially. To tell you how much of a premium he got for his business by doing that, here's Mark Carlson. Mark Carlson, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thank you for having me. Yeah, no, no problem. So tell us about Minnesota Mailing Solutions. I've got a sense of what you guys did, but let me know what what what, what kind of company were you guys? Uh, Minnesota Mailing Solutions was a company that uh, specialized in the office automation uh, arena of work, uh, particularly in. Um, uh, products that supported the mailing industry. So we sold postage meters, uh, addressing machines, folding, inserting machines, postal does software. Anybody ever, does anybody send stuff on the mail anymore? Like I'm thinking about myself, I get nothing by mail anymore. Did, did, did yeah. these, I'm surprised these businesses still exist. Yeah, no, they still exist. And, and uh, uh, you know, you probably, it's not that you don't get a lot of first class mail or personal mail. Um, most of that's done via email now and, you know, the, the invoices and things you get often come, uh, either directly to your, your uh, email box or right straight out of your bank. But, um, there's a very large industry, uh, and you get junk, what you would call junk mail at this point. Um, you get lots of bulk mail and, and large mailings from people doing marketing programs, even though the, uh, internet is uh, a big part of that. The mail industry is now um, one of the largest shippers in the world, um, right there with FedEx and UPS. So, yeah, there's uh, there's quite an industry that's still there. It's not as vibrant as it was, but that will kind of lead us when we talk. I'm sure later we'll be talking about why I decided to sell. You know, this is just one of those factors. But um, by and large, you know, it was a uh, four and a half million dollar business uh, when I sold it. When I purchased it, and how did uh, you get? Yeah, I was going to say you you purchased it. So what what uh, what were you buying when you purchased it, and how big was it then? Sure. Uh, when I purchased it, um, uh, this would have been in nineteen 
1998. You're testing my memory here, but yeah, 1998. I purchased it uh, as an existing business. Uh, it was uh, doing about $900,000 a year, and they had uh, six employees, a couple of salespeople, three service people, and, a, and an office person. Uh, and that was how much the, did you buy it for, Mark? Uh, I purchased that business for just under a million dollars, so it's about one times a revenue. Uh, all of the inventory came with that and um, got all the rights to the name and, and got the rights to uh, remain affiliated with the meter manufacturer, the postage meter manufacturer that was authorized by the Postal Service. So I was their exclusive dealer in um, the large metropolitan area of uh, Minneapolis-St. Paul and a little bit of Northern Territory as well. Okay, so this was a classic distribution business when you had, um, you know, the the manufacturer of these postage meters said to you, Mark, we want you to own Minnesota or Minneapolis, I should say, um, you know, go blow it out the door and, you know, sell as many of these things. We'll give you an exclusive territory. Is that how it worked? Exactly. That was exactly it. They, you know, and they, and typical of that kind of a, a model they had sales expectations and quotas that I had to meet. And uh, as the business grew and got better and bigger, they of course raised those quotas and raised those expectations. And you know, you know how that all works, but, um, and yeah, what, but, was the, but as, what was the threat? If, if you didn't meet the number, if you didn't meet the quota, uh, would you, you, did you stand to lose your territory, your exclusivity? Yeah, well, they had a, they had, would have a, um, uh, for lack of a better word, a, a disciplinary process, right? Uh, or a warning process of, of helping you get back on track where you needed to be. Obviously, that was never a problem for me because we grew the business from 900000 to uh, $4.5 million. Um, We were one of their, their bigger, uh, more successful dealers. And um, so, you know, what they gave me was marketing assistance, exclusive rights to the products um, and, and their reputation. They had a very good reputation. So that was, that had a value to it. That was important. Sure. So you built this business up over, looks like almost a 10 year run um, to a point where you had it up to four and a half million in sales. And then there must've been some sort of triggering event that made you think maybe it's time to sell. Yeah, uh, there was. Um, And and I wouldn't say that it was, uh, you know, a lot of times in a small business, uh, that triggering event might be, you know, the death of somebody, uh, loss of a major partner, you know, whatever that is. That was not the case for me. Uh, The triggering event was what we talked about at the very beginning. There was beginning to be this decline in first class postage and a decline in the sale of milling equipment. And as a result, um, the meter manufacturers weren't getting their share of quota and profit and growth that they were used to. Um, Not that we were underperforming, but the industry in general was. And so they took a different strategy and started to create their own uh, franchise or their own, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, their own like corporate stores. And they were starting to phase out some of the dealers. 
And they started by doing that in territories that you know, were under typically underperforming um, because they saw the kind of profits and margins that successful dealers like me were making, and they wanted to get in on that piece of the action. What and kind of margin so would you make, Mark? On Mark, on your four uh, and a half million in sales, what kind of margin would you make? Uh, we we operated on about fifteen percent. It was fairly high. Got it. Okay, fifteen percent net profit margin before tax. It, yeah, net after after um, expenses and payroll and uh, uh, taxes were after that, of course. Got it. Yep. Yeah, but we we did very well. It, it, it was a good business to be in. Um, and then when this the store started uh, appearing, and then uh, dealers started to sell, and other dealers started buying other dealers, and so there was this movement that was starting uh, for toward consolidation. Um, in, now, one thing I should point out to help clarify this, in the meter, uh, postage meter industry, there are four basic players that are sanctioned by the post office um, to sell postage meters. Uh, two of them, three of them are very, were very large, and the third one was a smaller player. And um, the two middle players ended up merging um, so the dealer I represented and another ma- manufacturer merged to become one company. Now we're down to three major manufacturers. There's a really big dog out there. Um, there's this now middle of the road group that I was representing. And then there was the lower end manufacturer. So there's all this consolid- consolidation going on. So go ahead. Yeah. So, so, so Mark, you had, you saw the writing on the wall, the industry was sort of reaching a plateau. They saw your margins and thought, okay, we we want some of that. And we're starting to set up corporate stores. Did you have um, a a provision within your agreement that would preclude them from setting up shop uh, as a corporate store and competing with you? Yeah. As long as I was, uh, um, as long as I was producing to expectation, um, there was never a concern for that. Now, I will say when you say never, when you say never a concern, is that because you had a good relationship with them, or because it was legally required? Like, were you protected legally, or was it just because you had that relationship equity? I, I, I was protected legally uh, by our, our uh, franchise agreement. So, as long as I met their quota expectations and was performing to standards. Um, I would not have an issue for that. They had no need to um, come after me. The wrinkle in this, uh, in my territory where my company was, remember I said that there there were the two middle players that merged. I had um, always competed against the other company's corporate store. So they had a corporate store here in the metropolitan area of Minneapolis, and I was an independent franchiser. Of course, I ran circles around their corporate store, um, but they wanted us to cooperate more. But because they merged, they still had to let me be where I was. And so there were, you know, things that would happen that, you know, any franchisor, um, franchisee always has some concerns with the franchisor as they change things. But my precipitating event was, it was more strategic. I saw the writing on the wall. I saw strategically where this was all going. I could see the pressure that was going to be coming for the sale of my company or the combination of my company with theirs. And so I decided that I would start exploring 
the possibility of selling my my company. And I knew I could only sell it to um, I could sell it to another individual, but the likelihood of my manufacturer approving that was very small because their ultimate goal was to combine us with their corporate store now that they had merged, right? So let and me so, let me understand that, Mark. Let me understand sure. that, Mark. So so in your agreement uh, with the manufacturer, they had the rights to approve your potential acquirer. Is that correct? That is correct. That was part of the franchise agreement. And I just want to speak directly to Built to Sell radio listeners here, because I think this is a really important point you brought up, Mark, and I think it's really important we underscore this. In the event that you are part of a distribution or you're a reseller of some sort, uh, you know, in the early days when you sign that agreement, it can be tempting just to gloss over uh, any change of ownership provisions. But make sure you look at those, because in, in many cases, as in Mark's case, the manufacturer uh, has the rights to approve uh, who you want to sell to. And it can be one of those big flies in the ointment. And, and, and Mark, in your case, it, it made the universe of people that could buy your business go from sort of infinite down to really these three big players. Is that right? That's exactly how it played out. And and there were only two players that, that I really could sell it to. One was the merged company, one of which I was you know a member of, or the really big dog in the industry. And so um, in my process, uh, I engaged the help of um, a broker that helped me do this, um, somebody who was very involved in, the, in, in this concept of dealer consolidation. Um, Give him or her he, a plug. Who is, who is she? Yeah, I'd, I'd love to because he's, he's fantastic. He's fabulous. Uh, his name is Jim Cars. And he works, uh, his own firm is called Prosperity Plus Management Consulting. And they're based out of Smithtown, New York, uh, on Long Island. And Jim uh, has a copier and mailing equipment background. I met Jim when I was uh, president of the Association of Independent Mailing Equipment Dealers. Yes, there is an association of of us out there. And uh, Jim was very involved in our association and uh, has been a really lead player in helping um, copier companies, postage meter companies, office automation companies um, merge, buy, and sell. He he's just he knows the game. He knows what to do. He he's incredible. All right, so- Solid plug for Jim. Let's yeah. move on. So, so Jim's Jim's your guy, and he's he's walking you through this. Um, he knew the two players, obviously, and take us from there. What what happened next? Sure. So um, we decided the the best strategy, and, and, and let me give you a time frame of this. This was probably my first conversation with Jim about this was end of February two thousand eight uh, or two thousand seven. Uh, maybe beginning of March. And so we started talking about, does it make sense? What might we do? Who might we approach? And then we came down to, we have to take your current person and the big dog, and we're going to let them both uh, uh, have the opportunity to buy your business. And so... So, But but you, Mark, you just said earlier that the your dealer, uh, if you, excuse me, or your manufacturer had the rights to um, not approve, if you will, another buyer. So why would your dealer or your manufacturer, you know, approve the sale to their biggest competitor? 
Uh, well, let me let me clarify that. Um, the approval was only to take over the existing franchise agreement. Hmm. So um, I could sell my business, my name, my process, my employees to anybody I wanted. I just couldn't continue to represent their product line. That's so, helpful clarification. Yes. Yeah, so in this sale, um, and I, I eventually ended up selling to the big dog, not to my, my manufacturer who I'd worked with for 10 years. And um, they bought my business, they bought my name, they bought my customer list, and they bought me. Uh, I had to stay with them for three years. Um, that was part of the, the purchase agreement. And we can talk about that a little bit more later. But um, So I didn't need their approval to sell that part of it. I just could no longer sell another piece of their equipment, which is fine because that's the big helpful. dog brought in all their equipment and that's what we sold. So walk through that process. So Jim is playing the big dog, uh, you know, off of the the slightly smaller dog in the industry. Um, did did he solicit bids from both of them? Did did both of them make an offer for the business? They both did. Uh, and and so the first step we did was to really sit down and talk about you know who are the players. So we got that set up. Then we sat down and we talked about how do we value this. What do we think this business is worth? And what is our method for coming to, to terms with that dollar amount? What would you, it's like when you sell for your house, you know, what do you want for it? And what will you settle for, you know, in order to get it? And What'd so Jim and I fun? had, we had agreement on that upfront. This is what we think. And um, Jim, the reason Jim was involved in this is that he really understood the metrics of the industry. And we were able to uh, basically come up, the strategy we used was um, along the lines of what I used when I purchased the business uh, myself uh, 10 years earlier or nine years earlier. And that was really about one times uh, the value of, of annual revenue. And so you figured it was worth around four and a half million. Right. Um, that's right. You figured as much. Okay. And so at the yep. time, if I'm doing the math right, you were running 15% uh, uh, net profit before tax, or many of us think of that as EBITDA, although they're not the same thing, obviously. But 15% right. of four and a half million is around 700 grand. So um, it, it was a little shy of, of seven times EBITDA. Is that is that right? It's kind of between six and seven yeah, times EBITDA. Yeah, I suppose you could put it. You yeah, you could put it that way. Well, we we ended up selling the business for a four point five six million dollars. Sorry, say that again. You you ended up selling the business for four point five six million. Yep. So got it. got it. So almost exactly what you hoped to get for. Exactly. Exactly. And uh, the interesting twist in this whole thing, as these negotiations went back and forth, there was uh, Jim did the, the majority of the negotiating face to face with the representatives from the, the, the two manufacturers, which removed me emotionally from it, which was a really good thing because, you know, all of us small business owners, we tend to identify with our businesses in a very big way uh, that somehow the business is us and we are they and, and removing that emotion part of it, Jim was very objective and uh, you know, it really kind of short, it, it, I would like to say it shortened the process, but it, it didn't, it actually lengthened the process because it, it just took a little longer to get through it all, which I think is a good thing. 
because um, we're all, we, once once you sell once you decide to sell something, you just want to have it done and be over with, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, for sure. So so you're you're sitting down with Jim. You figure it's worth somewhere around four and a half million, which is kind of basically what you bought the business for a one times revenue. Obviously, it was a much smaller business, but then but that's what you figured it was worth. So you go, Jim goes to the two folks. What were the offers that he was able to solicit? Like, what was their first shot over the bow? Was it were they decent? Were they lowballing you? What, what did you find? They were both lowballed. They were they were both hoping to get as much as they could for as little as they had to put out. Um, Do you and, remember and, what those first offers were? You know, that's a good question. I I want to say they were. I want to say they were less than three million. Less than three million. Um, it's been a while, so I'm a little fuzzy on that. And I'm sorry I, I didn't think about that in advance. But I, I, my, my gut is telling me they were a little bit less than three million. So we, Jim, went back with the criteria that we had established to make the argument, and the the offer, the next offer came up. Um, I don't remember to what. But by that point, both players knew that the other one were involved. We never directly said that, but you know these are savvy, um, uh, large, um, billion-dollar corporations. They're no dummies. They knew that they were going against each other, and that was the best scenario for me, because then they got serious. And so I the second say, round of offers. Do you remember what their second round of offers were? If the first was at less than three million. Um, I want to say we got started getting into the $4 million range and that probably would have been in end of May, uh, beginning of June timeframe. So now we went from March to end of May, beginning of June. So about three months, right? Um, cause they had to work with their teams and Jim had to work with me and you know, it's, just, that's just what it, it took. And what was the um, criteria? You mentioned the criteria. July, oh, Mark, before we go to end of July, you, you mentioned uh, there were criteria that Jim went back. You got the lowball offers. You and Jim had agreed to a set of criteria. What was the bulleted list of criteria that Jim was using to make the case that it was worth more like four and a half as opposed to three? Sure. Um, uh, revenue, obviously, for one. Um, to uh, past history of performance. I had two things going there. The, my, my manufacturer that I represented knew all the numbers because they you know, obviously had them from me. The big dog that we went after had uh, an inkling to all of that um, only because they knew how much business I was taking, had, had taken away from them. And uh, obviously they wanted to get that business back. So they had an idea, although they didn't have specific. We also went back in with numbers of new postage meters that had been added over the course of time. We went back with um, uh, sale, uh, exact sales of product numbers, um, performance of staff. Uh, they, we just had kind of like the bigger picture of making the business and being able to prove the business was very healthy, very vibrant, with a really rock solid um, core of a group of employees that were working in the business. Got it. So you mentioned by July the offer had increased again. Yep. Uh, and so we were getting then down to like final numbers. And the big dog came in with a big number. 
And my current meter manufacturer came in with uh, about a half a million dollars less. So they came in at about four. The big dog came at 4.5. And um, the the manufacturer that I represented, and this is, uh, I don't want to, sent too much uh, direct quotes, but the quote from their negotiating team was, well, Mark is loyal to us. He'll never sell to them. And at that point they is when they lost because they didn't realize that this was a business deal, not an emotional personal deal, because I have always operated my businesses as though they were an investment and not a definition of who I am, what makes me successful, what makes me not successful. It had nothing, the business was a business and it wasn't me. It was a business. And so Mark, we how did you it. come to, how did you come to that? Because that's a very sort of enlightened view that I, I don't think all entrepreneurs share. Many, many, many of us become very emotionally attached to our businesses. So was there some life yeah. event, some learning, some, how did you get to that point where it was just a business decision for you? <laughs> well, um, I had a partner in this business, um, and uh, my partner uh, was the, was a partner also in an accounting firm. So he brought a very level-headed approach to our share. He was a silent partner. I uh, was the operating partner. And um, I learned that from him. I also learned it from, I would say, being president of the Association of Independent Mailing Equipment Dealers. I saw a lot of dealers, how they operated. Um how they uh, uh, worked in our industry and what was successful in that. And the most successful people were the ones who were able to separate their personal ego from the business. And um, I, I just saw too many cases of personal ego impacting business in a negative way. And I just wasn't going to be part of that. So great, great point. So you got the big dog offering four and a half this group who falsely thinks you're loyal to the end offering four, you obviously um, accepted the four and a half and, and agreed to uh, terms with them. I did. And, and uh, so then they, the next uh, step in the phase of all of this, uh, the big dog started doing their due diligence. So they came in, obviously they, they poured through my books. I spent, uh, and then I think this is the hardest part of the wholesale was doing the due diligence. They poured through the books. They asked a ton of questions. Um, and that is a time where things start to feel very personal. And it took a lot of effort to make sure that I was staying on track with the business side of this, not the personal side of this. When it, whether it came to valuation of you know, inventory evaluation, what changes they might want to make to the staff, you know, why did you do this? Why did you do that? I mean, it was very intense and there was a lot of paperwork and a lot of reporting. Jim helped with that as well. Um, but I, I did the vast majority of that. Um, and, and here's where it really got rough. I had a very loyal and good staff. We had grown to 16 people in our staff at that time. And I'm doing all of this on the down low because obviously I don't want them to see this. And uh, for me to do what I had to do and keep it seamless and invisible to the staff so that daily life went on and the business went on as it needed to, um, that was really difficult. And, and that, took, that took a lot of fortitude to get through. <laughs> 
And I, I think a lot of business owners, if you're not prepared for that, um, that could, can be a very difficult time. Help me square this because on one hand you said business is just a business. You had this very cold calculating accountant as a silent partner. And so you weren't going to get emotionally wrapped up in it, but it, it, it felt emotional for you at, on, at least on some level, because clearly these employees, you felt like you were, it sounds like a cheating spouse where you were sort of carrying on this, this route roost behind their backs. You know, were you emotionally engaged in the business or not? Maybe help me understand that. Well, I would say I was not emotionally engaged in the business as far as the finances and the deal goes, but I was very emotionally involved with my staff and my people because that's just the kind of manager who I am. And I think most small companies are attached to their staff like that. And there's a great sense of loyalty, a great sense of wanting to take care. Um, and I knew it would, you know, rock a few worlds for people. And so for me, part of my goal uh, in the sale was to make sure that my employees were taking as best care of as possible in the whole transition so that they came out on their feet as well. That part was it sounds like the yeah, it sounds like the buyer had some different views about the team after the sale than you did. Maybe walk us through that. But where, where yeah, was they, the conflict? Yeah, well, that was interesting because when the purchase was made, the purchase agreement, uh, the statement, the verbal statements made were, we want you to stay and operate exactly as you are right now because that's why we're buying you. You're successful. You're making money. It's working. That's what we want. So we want you to stay on for three years to run this business and um, uh, make sure that it transitions correctly. And so I agreed to that. Um, I was pretty young at that time. I was only maybe 50, 57, I think I was 57 at that time. And um, no, I was 50, I go back 10 years. I was, I, I was uh, 50, 54 years old at that time. And I knew it would be too early to retire um, and do nothing, but um, uh, I agreed to stay for the three years thinking, oh, this is going to be a really long time. Uh, it went fast. It, it went very fast. But, you know, that's what they said. So I said, okay, I'll do it. And um, the first day that they took uh, possession of the company, they changed the compensation structure. They changed the um, uh, benefit packages, which were the benefits were to be expected to be changed, but not the way we paid people, not the hours that people worked. Um, they just they changed the equipment that they said we were going to be able to sell. Um, they just they just came in as a typical big corporate acquisition person does and try to take their model and force it onto yourself uh, and expect you to perform the same way. It, it, it rarely works. Um, Mark, so that was the conflict. Mark, for, Mark, for clarity, uh, you accepted the offer of four and a half, four point five six million dollars from the big dog with a three year earnout. What proportion of the four point five six was quote unquote at risk, meaning was tied to your performance within the three year earnout, or was your earnout above and beyond the four point five six? That was the beauty of 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 the negotiation and and. Um, Jim and I worked hard on this. Um, I got a uh, complete payout uh, the day we signed. 
Um, they held a little money in escrow to make sure that inventory and all that kind of stuff worked out, and that was paid off within, um, you know, about three or four months. But um, I got the full payout, the full everything. The earnout, they brought me on as an employee. They put me on a salary, and so I continued to get. I got paid as an employee on top of it. What was the What was the penalty if you left at, before the three year? Um, I don't. I don't recall that. I don't think there was a penalty. Um, there wasn't. Uh, there wasn't a penalty. Why'd you stay? Um, I would say uh, for three reasons. The first one is because I said that I would. Um, it's an integrity issue. Uh, that was an agreement we made. I would stay for three years, and I did. Um, the second reason is I wanted to make sure that my employees were taken care of and had a sense of stability and safety so that they were willing to stay so that the business would continue. Um, and the third reason would be, um, I had a lot of relationships in this industry. The success of any company I think is built on its relationships and I had a loyalty issue to my customers and I wanted them to, make sure that they were taken care of. And I was the face of the company and I wanted them to know that I was there for the long haul as well. So those three things. What was the toughest part about the three year earnout period? Uh, again, I'm, I'm sure there were lots of acrimonious sort of issues, but if you could pinpoint one where you thought, uh, you know, they were offside and what, you know, what they were proposing was either not what you had agreed to in the negotiation process or not in the spirit of the agreement. If you could pick kind of one specific yeah. example. Well, if I had to pick one, I, I could actually pick two, but if I had to pick one. Yeah, two's I good. Would, go, go ahead and share yeah, two. Yeah, let me give you the, fir the first one came very early on and it was within the first few days. Um, I, they, they brought their whole team in to do the kickoff and um, they were there the, the the vice president of the whole uh, uh, division was there and I thought she was going to be around for a whole week and she was there for about six hours and said, you've got this running like a machine. You don't need me here. And she, she left. Uh, but um, uh, shortly after that, um, they, they changed the product offerings that we were going to be able to sell. And they changed the product offerings because of internal issues within their large organization. You know, when you when you're purchased by a, a multi-billion-dollar company, there's lots of silos in that organization, and they weren't going to let us sell some equipment because it was going to step on the toes of, a, of another part of their organization. Well, these were very high-end. Um, high volume meters that sat on the end of big inserting machines that like banks would use and uh, mail houses would use. And they're very expensive um, and they're high dollar volume. And that was a big part of our business. And suddenly they were going to say, you can't sell these when they told me we could. So it really impacted our ability to meet the profit numbers that they wanted. So we protested that and we were able to work through it and um, I got exception for it and we started selling that stuff right away. But I really had to go to bat for that. It was a big battle. It wasn't really pretty and it wasn't really fun. How was your motivation impacted 
by the sale of your company? I mean, prior to the check clearing, uh, I'm assuming a lot of your wealth was in this one share of this company. Uh, it was life or death. You were personally on the hook for payroll. Switched to a point where all of a sudden you've got a you've got a bunch of cash in the bank. The check is cleared, and you're on some salary for three years. I mean, did it impact your motivation? <laughs> um, I would say a little bit, but. Um, uh, my background, I worked for large corporations before I owned this business. It's not like I have been a small business owner my whole life. I understood the corporate game, uh, our game. Uh, I have a, uh, an MBA in organizational design and development. So for many years, I helped organizations design their work you know, and, and link their people to work. So, so I knew how all this worked. So that was not a big surprise to me. It was just um, it was just a reminder of why I went in and sold uh, worked for myself only. I guess is a lesson learned. <laughs> how did Mark? How did the the your the dealer that you or the the manufacturer that did did not win, if you will, the one that that over uh, overplayed its hand, thinking that you were so loyal to them that you you know you would accept their lower offer. How did they react to the news that you'd sold to the big dog? Um, I would relate that to uh, a very ugly divorce. Uh, <laughs> it's probably the best way I could put that. Uh, vengeful, uh, angry, and um, suddenly um, a lot of bad-mouthing in the industry. Uh, what happened? Well, um, they, uh, I will say this during the sale process, because of the success of my dealership, I was a member of the manufacturer's uh, dealer advisory board. And, um, this was a very difficult, um, tightrope for me to walk because we were talking dealer strategy. And in the middle of all this, I'm talking to them about selling and they, my assumption was that they knew I was talking to, you know, their biggest competitor about selling. And so the president of the, of the mine manufacturer before I sold took it personally and chose to create a frivolous lawsuit and um, sued me personally, um, accusing me of taking trade secrets and selling them to the large competitor. And I mean, none of that was true. None of it, uh, happened. Um, I will say on my word as a, a man of integrity, I never, ever did that. Um, and so there was this frivolous lawsuit that cost me uh, about $150,000 uh, to defend, um, which just ultimately get, ended up getting dropped. Uh, it, it did nothing except waste several months, uh, maybe a year of my time with some depositions and lawyer costs. And um, it just went away. It just dropped. So the 150 grand or the lawsuit was, was not, I mean, it may have been triggered by the fact you chose the big dog's offer, but it wasn't that they weren't contending that you'd, you, you'd broken some law by selling to the big dog. They'd chosen to use these, the, the, the fact that you were on the advisory board, therefore you knew, you know, uh, confidential information and you'd somehow shared that. Is that, that was the, the yeah. the nature of their suit. It wasn't that you'd sold something that you no. didn't have the rights to sell. 
Nope. They, they, they just want to take that personal thing. And, and, uh, I'm, I'm sure that the president of the other company, uh, or the, of my manufacturer went to his board and said, don't worry about this. I understand it. I'm sure he was embarrassed. I feel badly about that, but, um, you know, that was his mistake, not mine. Was there any part of you, Mark, that, that you, you wanted to go back to, to the, to the, your, your manufacturer and say, you know, when they, you know, when they said, look, Mark's never going to sell, uh, because he's loyal to us. Was, was there any part that you wanted to kind of pick up the phone and say, guys, you're, you are, uh, overplaying your hand. If you think I'm loyal to you, to the extent that I would walk away from $500,000 of incremental value, you're, you're, you know, you're dreaming. Did you ever have that conversation or did you think about having that conversation? Um, I thought about having that conversation, um, but um, I didn't do it because um, uh, Jim, my broker, and I, we talked a, a lot about this and really felt that we had given them every fair opportunity and as much uh, information as we could legally um, for them to come up to that decision. Because at the end of the day, um, this was their responsibility to do their due diligence and their research to understand it wasn't my responsibility to hand them everything on a platter. And um, we gave them one more chance to, to match the offer. We told them we had a, a much higher offer um, and they chose not to do that. And so at the end of the day, this was their decision uh, and not mine. Did you, do you know if Jim told them what the offer was from the big dog? Uh, they, I'm not did sure. you just use much higher or do you know if he actually said four and a half? Well, I think he, I think he said, um, at least a half a million dollars higher. So I don't think I, you know, I don't think he would ever have given them the exact number that wouldn't have been fair negotiating, but I know he gave them enough information for them to figure it out. Got it. So flash forward a few years, here you are, you've, you've sold your business, you've gotten out of this lawsuit that was the frivolous lawsuit and, and three-year earnout. Um, what are you up to these days? <laughs> well, uh, when I left there, uh, uh, I will tell you, there's a couple of things that happened in my life. The first one is that that first year of transition was a very stressful time. And we talked about them changing, you know, things up quickly, the, the, the equipment change out, all of that. Um, and I will tell you that I channeled my frustration and anger um, about things into food. And I ballooned up. I'm a, I'm a guy that's five foot 11. And I ballooned up to 245 pounds. And um, that I, I knew that I was not living a healthy lifestyle and that I was compensating somehow for this. And a wonderful thing happened is two of my children came home within six week period of time of each other and announced that they were pregnant. And I was going to be a grandfather. And I looked in the mirror and I thought, if I'm going to be around for these grandkids, something has got to change here. And I went on a health kick and I lost 60 pounds and I worked out. I got into the best shape of my life, even better shape than I, when I was first married in my twenties. And, um, I got this passion for wellness. And so I went back to school um, in the evenings online, and I got certified to become a holistic life and health coach. And I launched a life and health coaching business called Tremendous Transformations. And the 
the tagline I used on that business today is um, helping people create possibility through personal transformation one life at a time. So uh, for the last uh, five years, I've been doing one-on-one personal life, health, and small business coaching with people. I love helping people move. And then most recently, um, I've been pulled out of retirement, and I am um, also working um, as a retained search uh, executive recruiter for a company called Rollin Horse Recruiting Company. Um, Rollin Horse is a German name, R-A-U-N-H-O-R-E-S-T, Rollin Horse. And I, <laughs> uh, play, I went back to my corporate roots, which were in the utility industry, and I now place uh, mid-level um, and C-level uh, employees in the utility industry, particularly gas and electricity. A lot of people, Mark, are probably listening to that and saying, wow, you got the big check. Why on earth are you going back to work? <laughs> <laughs> I get that. I get that. So let's break that number down a little bit. Four and a half million bucks. Sounds great, right? Um, silent partner, 50-50. Now we're down to 225. 2.25 million, right? Uncle Sam got half of that. So that leaves like a little over a million bucks, right? And uh, so that went in to be invested in retirement. I was only 56 years old by the time I finished my stint with them. Um, and, you know, it allowed me to pay everything off and invest in my retirement. That was my 401k plan, I, I guess you could say. Um, so my future is set, but there's this gap between age 56 and age 66, 10 years. And you can only play so much golf. You can only do so much of this and so much of that. But I was feeling fuzzy. I'm, I'm an engaged guy. I, I need to be involved. I, I love to, to help people find work, get better health. Um, this became a real turn on for me. And I call it my give back career. Um, so hmm. I, I did all of this work my whole life um, to get my nest egg built, take care of my family. But now my work is not about so much building companies, although I do enjoy doing that. It's more of a give back career where I can help other people be better. And do I get paid for it? Sure. Do I get paid? Do I get paid well for it? Yes, I do. Uh, it's deserved, but um, it's really a give back career. And, and it's made all the difference in the world for me and how I look at things. I'm looking at a book on my shelf. Uh one that was given to me by one of our certified value builders, got a book called Halftime. And I think it, uh, I haven't actually read it yet, uh, full disclosure, but uh, I think the, the general theme is, uh, is very similar. Finding a, a give back or a purpose-driven uh, career after selling a business is something a lot of people do. Uh, Mark, thank you so much for sharing in such candor. Uh, where do people reach you? Uh, the best way to reach me would be um, on my email, uh, would be mark at, and this is all one word, tremendous transformations with an S at the end.com or my website is, you know, triple W tremendous transformations.com. They can see me there as well. And that'll all be in the show notes at built to sell.com. Mark Krantz, yep. Carlson, thank you yep. so much for joining us. Awesome. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much, John. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. 
John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W.